The following podcast is a Dear Media production. This episode is brought to you by The Skinny Confidential. We never do sales or promotions. I think it happens like twice a year. So this is super exciting because we are having our two-year bash. This is to celebrate the Skinny Confidential product line being in business for two years. It's so crazy. We launched the ice roller two years ago. So to have this sale is major. We're doing 20% off, excluding kits and gift cards. So go on, shop, get all the tools and products that you need. You can even get gifts, what I do for birthdays. So like I'll order razors, ice rollers, pink balls to my house and wrap them up in cute wrapping. And then I just have a gift ready to go. We also have a huge giveaway going on to give back to our community as a thank you. You will win the entire Skinny Confidential line, the sleeping bag planner, face oil, razor, shaving cream, facial massager, ice roller, razor replacement blades, driving gloves, and my book signed by me. You will also win the Skinny Confidential canopy diffuser. You will win Bala Weights, the on-the-go kit in blush, of course. Moon Juice's Magnesium, which is pink. And then you also will win a skincare and glam bag by Stony Clover Lane. All you have to do is head to our latest Instagram. You tag a friend in the comments and you follow a couple people. So easy. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for being so supportive of the product line. I could not even imagine in my wildest dreams how many of you would rally and support this brand. Honestly, every time I see you guys ice rolling, sculpting your face with the pink balls and shaving. It just it just makes me so grateful. So again, 20% off the entire site, excluding gifts and gift cards. Use code PINKBASH. Go to shopskinnyconfidential.com and use code PINKBASH. She's a lifestyle blogger extraordinaire. Fantastic. And he's a serial entrepreneur. A very smart cookie. And now Lauren Everts and Michael Bostick are bringing you along for the ride. Get ready for some major realness. Welcome to the Skinny Confidential, him and her. Aha! It's like the great unknown. It's just vast desert. We're driving down camel tracks and stop for the final time were ordered out of the vehicle. And I remember him ordering me to walk out into the desert. And so we do, we just start walking and we're like tripping over these bushes, like thorn bushes and rocks and picking ourselves back up. And it's just so dark, but I can hear we're being surrounded and it feels like more of them are coming out of the shadows. And we just walk and we walk and we walk and finally we're ordered to stop and get down onto our knees. And I think, okay, this is it. This is it. This is the end of my life here on earth. Hello, everybody. We have one of the wildest episodes I think we've ever recorded with our guest today, Jessica Buchanan. I am going to read the brief verbatim that I have right now just to kind of give you a ground floor look at what I'm talking about here. And then this episode, like I said, is probably one of the wilder ones we've ever done. Definitely one of the crazier stories I've ever heard on the show. And that's saying a lot. On October 25th, 2011, while on a routine field mission in Somalia, working as the education advisor for her non-governmental organization, Jessica was abducted at gunpoint and held for ransom by a group of Somali pirates for 93 days, forced to live outdoors in a deplorable conditions, starved and terrorized by more than two dozen gangsters. Jessica's health steadily deteriorated until by order of President Obama, she was rescued by the elite SEAL Team 6 on January 25th, 2012. Like I said, guys, this is a wild story. Definitely different for us. Definitely a different kind of podcast, but it was so intense while Lauren and I were listening to her. I was captivated. I always felt like I was in a fucking documentary. It was intense. 
Our producer Carson was on and he was like, what is going on here? Everybody was blown away by this story. I think you will be too. With that, Jessica Buchanan, welcome to the Skinny Confidential, him and her show. This is the Skinny Confidential, him and her. This is one of the wilder stories that we've heard. And we've done about 600 of these things. We have yet to have someone who has a story like yours. Before we dive in, because I have a feeling this is going to you know, be an incredible episode, but let's go back with you a little bit. How did, how did you grow up? Where did you grow up? And how did you even come to be working in Somalia? I'm a teacher by profession, actually. And I grew up I grew up in the Midwest. I'm from Southern Ohio. I essentially grew up in the middle of a cornfield is what I say. My parents were makers. So my dad still makes furniture and and restores antiques. And so artists, my mom was a a jeweler and they were your proverbial hippies in the 60s and 70s. And then they switched from that ideology to religion. Kind of grew up conservative in the church. Church was a big deal for us went to Christian school and all of that. And I think, you know, just from the very beginning, it was instilled in me that to whom much is given, much is required, you know? So I had been given this education and I had this skill set and I had these gifts and these talents and, and this, this home and this family. And so there was just something about the way we were raised that we were always very aware of less fortunate and and people who were in need. And there was something inside me that felt like I wanted to to give to serve some something, do something. And I've had many lifetimes of <laughs> college and 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 professions. And I always say that I've taken the scenic route. But I finally went back to college for the final time, like in my early to mid twenties and got a teaching degree. And the first summer in between my college course, I by luck, got this position to go teach in Honduras for the summer. And I spent all summer. It was super, it was the hottest I've ever been in my life, which is saying a lot. I spent all summer in a classroom with fifth and sixth grade kids, like 60 of them. Dogs were running through my classroom. And, you know, I not, we couldn't understand each other because I didn't know Spanish and they didn't know English. But something inside of me came alive. And I knew that this was the path that I was supposed to take. And so I finished up my degree, but I needed to do my student teaching. And I looked around at the options and it just didn't interest me to go sit in a public school somewhere outside of Philadelphia. So I thought, well, let me see where I can go. And I was the first student in my college, my education program to get my student teaching degree overseas. And I got a job actually at an international school in Nairobi, Kenya. They offered me a position and I took it. So you get there and I assume you start teaching Mm -hmm. and walk us through what happens. So, I mean, I start teaching. I'm just a regular fourth grade teacher in this classroom. And I go out one Saturday night with some friends and I see this cute guy across the dance floor at the club that we're at. And I motion him over and he ignores me. (laughs) And I think, okay, that's, no, we're not going to do that. So I motion (laughs) him over again. (laughs) And he comes over. I can't hear anything. It's really loud. I think he says his name is Oric and he's from Sweden. I'd never met anybody from Sweden. So Oric seemed like a, you know, completely normal name. Turns out his name is Eric. And I ended up marrying him a year and a half later. And we've been together for 15 years. But he was really how I 
got to Somalia. He's the equivalent of a human rights lawyer, and he was working in Somalia and based kind of in Nairobi, which is kind of common, especially at that time, you'd be based in a place like Nairobi that was a hub, and then you would travel in and out of these riskier. What is the, what's the distance? What's the, I know the right next to it. Yeah. I mean, we would take these little like propeller planes that didn't have bathrooms. And I mean, it was, there was nothing comfortable about it. So, I mean, it was like a five hour flight. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was hardcore. And so he ended up being stationed or like positioned so that he was working in Hargeisa, Somaliland more. And after we got married, I just decided I didn't want to be away from him all the time. We didn't want to have a long distance marriage. So I quit my teaching job and moved up to Hargeisa to be with him. You know, again, teachers always find work. And and so I started at the very beginning and we had a bunch of Ethiopian refugees living on our compound. So I started working with the kids and teaching them English. And then before you knew it, I had a dining room full of grownups who were who wanted to learn English. And it was super fun. But word got around that there was a an actually like a, a trained teacher in town. And so I started getting lots and lots of work. And then I started working for the Danish demining group which was the mine action unit of the Re- Danish Refugee Council. So these the town is full of non-governmental organizations, like nonprofits essentially, who are commissioned to go in and, and do humanitarian development work, you know, and they're from all over the world. I learned like the technical aspects of mine, risk education, conflict management, armed violence reduction, community safety, and then applied my educational and pedagogical skills to disseminating that information to these people groups who are largely like non-literate. They're, it's very nomadic. Like they're still out there like sure. herding camels and goats. What was the craziest thing that you saw that just shocked you and blew your mind at this point? Oh, man. I mean, I've been all over the place in East Africa, essentially. I will never forget my first, it was my first trip to Africa. A friend and I were volunteering in South Sudan and there was a little girl in the community and we met her and her mother outside the hospital and she had this, I mean, her stomach, she was like four. Her stomach looked like she was nine months pregnant. It was so distended and it was a benign tumor. They knew it was benign. It wasn't cancerous and it would only cost $400 to get it removed. If you're right in front of the little girl, is there a way to say here's $400? We did. We went through proper channels and, you you know, that's why organizations exist, right? They have a a standard checks and balances system. They're working with different governments and and countries. And so, yes, right. I I guess... (laughs) I would say that I feel like I'm a bleeding heart in some ways, like I have this deep level of empathy. And when you see something like that, yeah, you're like $400, like that's nothing. Let me, yeah, fix the entire community. But then I think that there's a a danger in that. Yeah. There's a lack of sustainability. And that's really what the development world is all about. That's, that's, there's a difference between humanitarian aid when you go in and you provide emergency services and then developmental assistance where, where you're going in, you're building up infrastructures and you're providing education and you're increasing access to education and, and healthcare so that people can learn and take over and take autonomy over their own, their own countries, their own. It's like that fish thing. Yes. It's like the right. fish thing. What What's is the it? fish thing? You always say that. If you teach a man to fish, this oh, is the fish if you thing. feed a man a fish, yeah. he only eats, eats for once. A day. If you yeah. teach him to fish, he eats for life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, I, I mean, I think that was like a fish there. Took me a second there. He has all different kinds of sayings. So <laughs> That's I'm not like, my saying. Thing. Okay, so, so, so you're there. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about 
what happens in this incredible story. Before you do, when you went and you knew there was risk, like, did you have any idea? Like, like I, I feel like people hear things in life and you say, hey, this is, but I maybe you disagree, but we never really believe it. It's us, right? You're like, okay, yeah, it's oh, risky, yeah. right? Is it like, so when you're going there, you're like, okay, these are the risks. Are they telling you what the risks are? Do you like, how do you, how are you thinking about it when you're first getting there? Or did there? you not think there was any risk really? Oh, no. I think you live in these places and you understand that there is inherent risk and you sign off on that to a certain extent. When you work for an organization, there are, again, those protocols that in the security and, and you have security advisors and you have people who are following the pulse of, of the security in, in the areas that you're working in. And it's supposed to work. But some things just can't be predicted. Right. So like just jumping into that day, October 25th, 2011, a few days prior, I had called my colleague who was a Danish gentleman that was working in the location that I was supposed to travel to in the southern part of Somalia. I don't want to get too in the weeds because it gets complicated, but I lived in the north. That's where I was stationed. And then I was being asked to travel to the south, which was less safe, but we did have programs running there. I had canceled the training twice before because I didn't feel good about it. I had this gut feeling that I just didn't want to go. Right. So I call my colleague up. I say, hey, I don't feel good about this. I don't want to go. We cancel it twice. The third time I call to try to cancel it again because I still just don't feel good about it. And he says, you know, why did you not feel good? Was there reports of activity going on? Yeah, There had been like, for example, a bus full of women and children, essentially Somali women and children that had been blown up. There was a lot of like clan conflict. So it, we weren't the targets. That's always right. As expats, as aid workers, we weren't the targets. But there was always the possibility that you could get caught in the crossfire, or, you know, be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I don't know. I'm a I'm a very sensitive person and I just didn't want to go. And so I call him up. I say, I'll pay for to fly your entire staff up here. Let's do the training up here. He says, no, part of our job is to be in solidarity with our staff. Like we are supposed to you're supposed to come down here. This is your job. Essentially, like if you don't get down here and do your job, I'm going to report you to our supervisor. And, you know, it wasn't said, but the implication was like, if if you don't want to do your job, we'll find somebody who can. And I mean, that's a very real scenario. And <laughs> I know it's not everybody's dream job, but for me, it was like I was I, I loved it. I loved my work. I, I loved the people that I was working with. I felt like I was making an impact. And I, I think that particularly for women across the board in, you know, work environments, oftentimes we do feel a little bit cornered, right? We do feel a little bit threatened and worried that we're going to, you know, lose our job for this reason or that reason. So that extends all the way to these field positions in Somalia. And so, you know, to your point, I was thinking like, I'm a school teacher from Ohio. What's the worst that can happen? You know, like bad things don't happen to girls like me, which is such a, such a naive privileged perspective to have. I get on a UN plane, fly south. The training's three days. And the first two days are great because we don't have to leave the guest house. The, the office and the guest house are attached. The second night, I didn't sleep all night long because I knew we were going to have to travel to the southern part of the city. And what I was worried about was actually like being in transit because if something's going to happen, it's probably going to happen when you're moving, right? And Not when you're like in the place or in yeah, the Yeah, I mean, room. it could be, but it's guarded. You know, we have armed guards everywhere. And so I just felt like we were more vulnerable. And for someone, I, I'm, I, I'm ignorant about this. What do you, 
you have armed guards because why? If you didn't have armed guards, what would happen? Which is a deterrent, mm. right? I mean, they're in a war zone, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I think just for general protection, you know, like... Would you ever go down there without armed guards? Or was no, that... no, no. You weren't allowed by so law. Even in, even in the northern part, I always traveled with an armed guard. We had armed guards living on our compound. I was never allowed to, like, walk around town by myself. I always had someone with an AK-47 following me. It was kind of like being famous, but not. <laughs> no one really cares that you're there, but you've always got to have an armed guard with you. So I think in a way you get really desensitized because you're just used to traveling this way. And it's your life. Like, I had been there at for two and a half years at this point. Well, it's also kind of a maybe a sense of safety. You're like, oh, there's somebody with an AK behind me. 100%. It's a false sense of security. Yep. And here's why. Because what I was worried about was, yeah, traveling from that guest house to the other, the field office. And, and that night I hadn't, the night before I hadn't slept all night because I kept having these horrible nightmares. And I'm not a prolific dreamer. So I'm not one of those people that has these dreams. And I'm like, oh my God, like, this happened and that's just not me. So it was very odd. And it, the dream was very specific. And I kid you not, I had dreams that I was being kidnapped by pirates. They had scaled the walls of the compound and they were trying to get into my room. And I woke up in the morning and I was just sweating, like, like exhausted and sweating. And I can remember very clearly getting up out of my bed and walking to my bathroom and looking at myself in the mirror and saying outside out loud to myself, just do you want to do this? And I knew the answer was no. And therein, in that moment, when I was standing there looking at myself in the mirror, I made the most important decision I have ever, I think probably ever made in my life. And I made the decision to abandon myself. And I walked away from myself and I walked away from what I knew to be true because every, my intuition was like throwing up red flares and screaming at me to listen, giving me that, that subconscious knowing and that truth. And I was still so afraid of what people would think about me or that I would lose my job. I let logic and, and the practical side, right, that we all, we all do this. We all find ourselves in these positions at some point. I let that win. And so I remember putting on my headscarf and and walking out of my room and that would be the last time I saw that girl because six hours later, I've finished the training. Everything's gone great. It's I'm like, I know I'm in the home stretch, right? Like I've just got a few more hours here in, in this part of Somalia and then I'm leaving the next morning on a UN flight and I'm heading back north to reunite with my husband and it's around three o'clock in the afternoon and we're waiting for the local security advisor. He's a man named Abdi Rizak to get our convoy of vehicles. Again, armed guards in the front, armed guards in the third vehicle. Paul, my colleague and I are in the middle. We have a driver. And how many of, of you are there? We're two expats. Okay. Right. The rest are like Somali. They're local staff that I had just trained and, and lots of guards. We've got drivers our local security advisor for that particular office, his name is Abdi Rizak, and he kept like getting on the phone and saying, okay, we're ready. And then stop, stop. No, we're not ready. Like uh, over and over. And I thought, this is a little weird, right? But and how many, how many, like when you say a lot of guards, like how many is this? Is this like hmm. five, 10, 20? Oh, I don't know. To be honest, maybe like eight. Okay. You know, yep. we definitely had some in our vehicle and then there were several yeah, maybe like eight. I'm just trying to get an idea yeah. of the size. And like, yeah. And yeah. we're in, you know, these these old school land cruisers, diesel, you know, so and it's dusty and it's hot. I'm like thinking about 
getting home, getting my workout in, what I'm going to have for dinner, you know, like just regular. I think I sent an email to my husband and we finally get into the vehicles and we pull through the gates and we're driving through the city. And and I use that term loosely. I mean, that's like there are people milling around. The streets are very narrow. They're rutted. And it had rained actually a couple of days before, which was, you know, a little bit out of the ordinary because this is desert. And we're driving. And then all of a sudden I I hear like kind of sense a vehicle come up on the right side of us and then they cut us off and they splash water and mud up all over the windows and the windshield. And I can't see out the window and I'm thinking, God, what a jerk. Who drives like that? Then I start hearing like yelling, like angry men and they're coming closer and it sounds like they've got the car surrounded. And then I hear the crack of the butt of an AK-47 on the car hood. And I'm sitting in the back on the left and Abdurizak, the, the security advisor, sitting on the right. And then his door is pulled open and there is a very angry man. His face is like all pockmarked and he's wearing a police uniform and he's got a brand new, like very shiny AK-47. He grabs Abdurizak out, slams him onto the ground, hits him in the head with his gun. And then he gets in and he points the gun at my head and starts screaming oh, at the Jesus driver to, to drive. What about the armed guards? They've disseminated at this point. What does disseminated mean? Like they've, they've, they've deserted us. So what's the point of having armed guards if they don't help you? Well, they got overrun, right? No, they oh. were in on it. Oh, they were in on it. We oh. were sold for $100,000 to be at this point in this place in time. So you, were, you and your colleague were the targets because yes. you were, okay. We're worth money. And so they were basically holding you to ransom you. Yes, while well, they were taking us. Right. Yeah. And at this point, I have like two thoughts that are on repeat in my head. Right. I'm just like, this is so bad. This is so bad. This is so bad. I have no frame of reference for how bad this is. Like nothing in my life has ever well, how, prepared how me for this. Yeah, how would you? Well, we go through trainings. Sure, like we go but... through hostile environment awareness trainings and they even do these mock like kidnapping exercises so that you're supposed to know what to do in the middle. Nothing can prepare you for this. No, this is like something you see in a movie and you think there's no way that actually happens in right. real life. Yeah. Wait, I, I have a question. What is the $100,000 for? Is it because you're from the United States? Is it because you're a woman? What's the what is the the currency of the hundred thousand dollars? So we didn't know this at the time, but then we, you know, you're filling in, piecing things together as you go along, and then in the aftermath, Abnurizak, that security advisor, had basically orchestrated the entire situation, that scenario, for us to be in that place at that moment for this takeover, and they paid him. A hundred thousand. That's the. And they still smash his head with the gun. Those are the. Yeah, they were play acting. acting. And I remember feeling sorry for him in that moment. But now I I know that he was he was the one who dropped us off there. It was essentially like yeah, it was like a drop, and we were being trafficked. But here's what I don't understand: Is it because you're a woman that they wanted you? Why is it a hundred thousand dollars? Like, what's is it because like what is the reason that they? Well, the hundred thousand was for them to do the drop. Right? Yeah, that's just people, for him. Just that was just that's to get, not that the ransom demand. That's we haven't even gotten to the ransom demand. No, that's not yet. the ransom. That was just for the security. Oh, because detail what they want to do is they want to have a ransom so they can get more money. So it's about the ransom. No, yes. they had they had to pay. I'm the just under, trying to understand is why do people get kidnapped? Yeah. because in a country like Somalia. The average life expectancy is 46 years. People live on less than dollar a day, a dollar a day. We're talking it ranks zero on there's a, a scale of life quality of life scale of every country in the world. And they rank dead last. 
There are zero industries. There's no farming. There's no export, no import. There's no way to make money in a country like Somalia. It is very, very poor. So you have to get creative with how you're making money. And this is a way to get creative. Yeah. So piracy. And again, I'm not an expert on the business of piracy. I'm an expert on my experience. But what I I understand. Do you remember that movie, Captain Phillips? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that happened like a year before my ordeal. And essentially what happened to him was his ship, he had this Marsk, Alabama, like a big, huge container ship, right? Worth like millions and millions of dollars. Because of all the goods in it. Because of all the goods, yes. So they were off the coast of Somalia, off the coast of the Horn of Africa in the Indian Ocean. And that particular area of water had become overfished by other commercial fishing areas. And and I think essentially Somali fishermen were like, hey, this is our water. This is our livelihood. You're overfishing it and you're taking away like basically the only industry we have. And so they started taking over these ships and holding them hostage. And then, you know, they'd ask for $45 million. The ransom demand would come down to a million I mean, that's a lot of money, right? So this started becoming a very heavily cobwebbed kind of network industry, kidnapping and ransom. Yeah, if, when, if all of a sudden you're making a dollar a day and then all of a sudden you get a million dollar check, that feeds you for, you know, your life. If you listened to the episode earlier this week with Scarlett Johansson, you know that I rub a lot of colostrum on my face. Here are the episode if you want the context there. I also take colostrum every single morning. And my favorite source of colostrum right now is from a company that I've recently fallen in love with called Armra. Armra is a proprietary concentrate of bovine colostrum that harnesses these 200 plus living bioactive compounds to rebuild the immune barriers and fuel cellular health for a host of research-backed benefits. I take this. I've not gotten sick since I take it. My immune system is on fire. It's so easy. You just put a little scoop in water. You can do it in the morning. You can do it in the afternoon. You can do it whenever. They also come in these little travel packs that you can get. I also buy the big jug. What the Armra Colossum is also going to ignite your metabolism. It's going to fortify your gut health. It's going to activate hair growth and skin radiance, and it's going to power fitness performance and recovery. Colostrum is something you definitely want in your routine, especially if you're into supplements. The reason I started taking this outside of obviously wanting a stronger immune system and better gut health is it really fuels fitness performance. And as you know, Lauren and I have been really focused on getting in the best shape that we can possibly be in this year. And it's just become a staple in our routines. So definitely check this product out. Visit TryArmra and use code SKINNY at checkout for 10% off your first purchase. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com. Use code SKINNY for 10% off your first purchase and follow them on Instagram at TryArmra. Visit www.tryarmra and use code SKINNY at checkout for 10% off your first purchase. Promo code SKINNY. Symbiotica, I can't even tell you where to start because you can't go wrong when you go on the site. There are so many good products and supplements on this site that are all high quality. They're bioavailable. They're really the most advanced delivery system you can possibly ask for that you can go on the site and sort of pick anything really scientifically proven to increase your vitality. It feels like everything is designed to fill in the nutritional gaps in your modern day diet. If I had to pick three products on their site, like gun to my head, I talked about this on the podcast with the founder, Shervine. I'm picking the vitamin C. I love the packets in my mouth, straight liposomal or in my water. And then I think I'm picking 
Oof, probably the magnesium spray. It's the spray that you spray on your body at night. It smells like lavender and it goes into your bloodstream through the skin. It's all natural. It's incredible. And I swear it just like makes you tired. And then I'm going to have to go with the glutathione, which is interesting because Michael and Shervine said they're going with the glutathione. This is something that is so great in liposomal form. And I just feel better right after I take it. I like to take this like during or before my workout. So those are the three products I'm picking. But honestly, you can't go wrong. I use my own code all the time. You're going to visit symbiotica.com slash skinny and you get 15% off site wide. This is a great supplement company to start any of your friends and family. This is a great gift. I'm telling you. So visit symbiotica.com slash skinny for 15% off site wide. It's like the mafia. Okay, so you've got people in the UK, you've got diaspora in the US who are the financiers. Like it's a whole it's a whole crime ring. It's heavily it's very strategic. They're very very smart. So when Captain Phillips his ship was taken over, they were held I think for 4 days. One of the SEAL teams came in. I'm not sure if it was SEAL team 6 and rescued them. And they sniped some people, they right? They did. Yeah, they and so that cause them to stop hanging out in the water so much and move more onto land and start taking humanitarian aid workers and, and expats like tourists and stuff. Because we came in and started taking them yes. out on the water. Yes. So they, so got they moved to land. Okay. okay. So I want you to take our audience on this journey. Okay. I'm in the land cruiser. So I'm thinking like nothing has prepared me for this. This is so bad. And then the other thing I'm thinking is just like, even if they stopped right now and kicked me out and let me walk back to town, like my life has fundamentally changed. Like nothing about my life will ever be the same again. And so we drive for hours. We stop. They change. It's like they change personnel, like a new shift of, of men get in. They're wearing belts of ammunition. They've got really big guns. Some of them are like big, huge machine guns that don't even fit in the car. So they're hanging out the windows. We drive some more. They stop. They They make us get in other vehicles. This goes on all night long. At one point, I remember hearing a high-pitched voice behind me. And I think that it's very odd because it sounds like there's a woman talking behind me. And that would be very strange it, just in general, but especially in Somali culture, they're very, very separate. And I turn around because I'm so curious. It's a nine-year-old little boy and he's wearing chains of ammo and he's got a, a machine gun. And I later get to know him a little bit. His name is Abdullahi. He was nine years old. He was learning the family trade of kidnapping and ransom. And he was had already killed three people. Wow. So like a child soldier, right? Essentially, we finally drive into, you know, just like it's like the great unknown. It's just vast desert. We're driving down camel tracks and stop for the final time. We're ordered out of the vehicle. And Paul is in the front seat. And I... I don't know other than I think it's just shock, right? Like that comes over me and I remember the man with the machine gun. He's got his head wrapped up in like a scarf. So it looks like a turban. And at this point, I'm not really sure who has us, like what what they want, right? Like, are, is this an ideological thing? Is this is like an Islamic terrorist group? If that's the, the case, then I'm dead. Or do they just want money? And I remember him ordering me to walk out into the desert. And I'm like, nope, no. I'm not I'm not doing that. And we go back and forth and he's screaming in my face to walk gun to my head. And I'm like, nope. Because I have no idea what's waiting for me out there, but I I can tell you it's not going to be good. In my mind, I think I'm probably going to be gang raped or something. 
And finally, Paul comes around and he takes my hand and he says, Jessica, you know, we have to walk. I know he's right. And so we do. We just start walking and we're like tripping over these bushes, like thorn bushes and rocks and picking ourselves back up. And it's just so dark, but I can hear we're being surrounded and it feels like more of them are coming out of the shadows. And, you know, I'm like saying goodbye to my husband. I'm saying goodbye to my dad. My mom had just died the year before. And so I'm just like in my heart, like calling out to her, like, help me be strong. Please help me be dignified. Like something in my head, just like, I don't want to beg. Right. You know, and I think that all of us maybe don't spend a lot of time thinking about what the end of our lives are going to look like, but I never had ever thought it would end like this. And, you know, the whole time I'm like, I'm 30, 31 at this point, And I'm thinking like, I didn't even have a chance to become a mom. You know, I, I, I put all that off for work and we just walk and we walk and we walk. And finally we're ordered to stop and get down onto our knees. And I think, okay, this is it. What is this going to be like? This is it. This is the end of my life here on earth. And then I hear one word, one of them. It's so quiet. Like it's just so still. One word. Sleep. One of them says, and I'm like shaking my head like, what did I, what did I just hear? And he says, go to sleep. And they just want us to lay down in the dirt and go to sleep. And I'm like, it's incredible how your body knows how to protect you. And it just takes over. And I collapse into the dirt, into the ground. And I pass out. Like, I, I think I sleep for a couple of hours. And I wake up as it's starting to get light and kind of look around and, and, and evaluate. And I will always say, you know, it was like waking up in hell. We're just outside. This would, you know, end up, we thought maybe this would last for like a week maybe two weeks. We're humanitarian aid workers. We're here to help. Like, you know, the communities are going to p- put pressure on these guys. And it's just the two of you. It's just the two of us. And Paul's quite a bit older than me. He had just turned 60 at that point. I'm like 31. Yeah, that would start my 93 days of the most extreme camping experience, I guess you could say. But we were kept outside. We were never taken to a house. We were never given like shelter or a tent or a tarp, a sleep, sleeping bag, nothing. At one point, a couple weeks in, we were finally given a blanket. And does anyone come along the way from, you know, from that group and give you context of what's happening or why you're there or what they're doing? Or like, do you have any kind of conversation about, you know, what the hell you're doing there? Mm-hmm. It would take about a week for us to finally get some information. No one really spoke English, and we kept being told we were waiting for a communicator. That was the word they used. And Paul and I were like, oh, they must mean the negotiator. And no, they really meant a communicator. This creepy guy, his name is Jabril. He had come up from Mogadishu, and he spoke pretty good English. He said he had an NGO. I don't know. And he started doing translations and, and he giving was a us pirate information. Or just a guy they brought he in? said that he was a guy that they brought in. He wasn't. He wasn't. But he then tells us, yeah, you're here for ransom and the ransom demand is $45 million. Does that make you feel better in a way knowing that you're there for a ransom? Yes. Because initially, yes. I know it's a strange question, but. No, it it is because you're like, okay, money, that's better than an ideological like ISIS or something. Yeah, not to be morbid, but if you're, you would be worthless if you weren't living, right? So. Well, they would sell your body back, but essentially I'm worth more alive than dead. Sure. Yeah. Okay. During this first week and the following weeks, 
what are your days like? Are you just kind of waking up and sitting tight and in a cell? Or are you just kind of out in the open? Like, no, what she's is, camping. No, I know, but mm-hmm. I'm like, so what's the supervision? Like, what are you what are you doing this whole time? You're outside, right? Yeah, we're outside. I mean, trying not to lose my mind. <laughs> you they know, I mean, you in- eh, a little bit. I mean, what it ended up developing into, we got a routine down. We, you know, we traveled, we moved around 50 or 60 times. Like there was the, always this feeling that we were running from something, right? So I would sit for 12 hours underneath a tree or lying beneath a bush if the the bush wasn't high enough to sit under. I had to sit undercover during the day. It was, you know, it's sunny. It's Africa. So trying to get some shade. And then we would sleep out in the open on a mat at night. The days, once things kind of settled into a routine of nothingness, of just this blankness, it became more of a mental battle of like trying not to just go crazy, not not lose my mind. I, I mean, I was not one of those hostages where they give you books to read and a notepad and pen to, you know, write letters or your reflections. I had nothing, you know. At what point, or maybe you didn't feel like this, did you feel like you needed sort of a strategy? And mm-hmm. what I mean by that, like like my brain, and maybe this is, I'm not in your your circumstances, but like, like maybe I'm trying to befriend someone or get to know someone. What was your sort of strategy if you had one? I had a couple of strategies. Yes, absolutely. There were shifts of pirates that would come in and they call themselves pirates. I don't think they were fishermen, but they didn't have another word for it. They were just gangsters and bad people, but we we call them pirates. And they would come in these shifts, like these five-day shifts. And so there were a couple that I knew that I needed to be really careful around and stay as far away from as if possible if I could. There were a few, like we gave them nicknames, Paul and I, so that we could talk about them without them knowing about it. So there was a man there who was a driver. His name was Dair. We called him Helper. He... He made bad decisions, but he was not a bad person. And he tried to help us as much as he could. I think he tried to protect me as much as he could. He was very religious. He prayed five times a day. He's a Muslim country, right? I think there was some respect for him amongst the other pirates as well. And so he slept next to me the entire time that he was there. And I think that that had a lot to do with why I wasn't sexually assaulted. And so I'm very grateful for that. So, yeah, it it was a lot about sitting there and studying. Like, I've always had pretty good observation skills, but man, they're like killer now, you know, like, because I'm just honing them because my life is dependent on it. Right. So I felt like I learned even more how to tap into my sensitive nature and my intuition, even though I had told her to we can curse on here. Yeah. 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 Like, fuck off, you know, on October 25th. I had a really kind of like a a moment of epiphany. I had several, actually. And a lot of that had to do with just surrendering to things that were natural in in me. And not too long ago, I met someone, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., so I meet I meet people all the time that are like government or military and, and they had something tangentially to do with my 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 situation and someone told me not too long ago that they actually use my kidnapping my captivity as a lesson in one of the classes that they teach in college around building rapport and I was like okay I, I can you tell me more about that and she said that you know they could hear 
like at times, and we can get to the military component in a minute, but there were ways that they could hear some of the conversations that were happening and they could hear how I befriended and how I connected with several of my kidnappers. And they actually use it as a model for how to build connection and rapport with people. And she said to me, you saved your own life and Paul's at least five times. Like, give us an example where they think that you saved you and Paul's life. I mean, I don't know the particulars on their end, but I can think of some times where, you know, things started to escalate. They were really angry at us because negotiations weren't moving in the right direction. That was always what, you know, and and if our people weren't offering enough money to counter their demand, then we got the we got the brunt of it. Right. So they'd come over to us. They'd be raging and screaming at us and threatening us with their guns. And sometimes Paul would scream back and I would just like come into myself. I wouldn't make eye contact. I would look down. I would say, you know, I would try to relate to them. I am sorry. I know how frustrating this must be. This is frustrating as frustrating for you as it is for us. I know you don't want to be here either. Like just trying to appeal to them on a human level, right? I mean, it's the same as any of the stories that you're going to hear of like when somebody is assaulted or or anything like trying to make yourself and connect as two human beings instead of someone who's the victim in, in, in the captor. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense at at any point. I mean, I can't believe that you're a wo- you're the only woman out there and you weren't sexually abused. You're so lucky, so lucky. for that. I mean, so lucky. I don't know that, that I a- would have been able to recover the way I have if that had not been the case. I mean, that gives me chills for you. Thank yeah. God. Yeah. Was besides verbal abuse, was there other kinds of abuse that like, are they hitting you? Are they pushing you with the gun? Did you get hurt? I mean, not irreparably, but sure. Absolutely. Force was used a lot. I mean, I've had a gun held to my head more times than I can remember or count. I've been threatened that I will be sold to Al-Shabaab, which is an Islamic terrorist group. I mean, there was a lot of just emotional verbal abuse as well as the physical abuse. Looking back now that that you're here, do you see things that you didn't see in the moment that where they were brainwashing you? Mm, I don't think so. I don't think it was that kind of situation where I had to worry about like Stockholm syndrome or or anything like that. You were literally just an asset to them. I'm a commodity. I'm a dollar sign. That's it. It's not personal. But none of the men like try to like creep up on you and be creepy. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Like, in the middle of the night. But you had you had helper next to you. I did. And I was able somehow. I mean, I I don't know like where you stand on your spiritual beliefs and things. But I mean, every single protection out there had to do with the fact that my mom was protecting me. I It was just miracle after miracle. I, I can't explain it other than I am just so lucky. I mean, I was woken up in the middle of the night because someone was trying to climb on top of me. But nothing happened. What do you, um, did you say? Get the fuck off. I me? didn't. I just pretended like I was still asleep. And I started kicking and moving, and and something something came along where they were pulled away. You know what I think when you tell me you're camping outside? What about the animals? Is there if freaky animals too? I mean, you've got a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot of going on there. Lot, lots of different. No, the least of your worries. No. At this point. <laughs> well, you know, actually, I did kill a fair amount of scorpions with my Birkenstocks. I will say that Somalia is not it's not like Kenya, even though they're, you know, next door to each other. So maybe you have to worry about some hyenas or something. We killed a couple of snakes, but it wasn't any it, it wasn't a huge deal. When you look back on the, the experience, what's the most memorable, memorable day? Good or bad? I remember 
you know, when you were talking about strategies, I realized at some point, maybe 40 or 50 days in that we were in this for the long haul. Like this was not going to end as soon but as you don't we know hoping. it's 40 to 50 you, days you, in because you don't have a calendar. Well, so I can count the days. I don't know what day on the calendar it is, but I am, you can be certain I'm counting what day I'm on. You're counting what day. I'm yeah, counting I mean, just what crazy day to I'm think on. about like to put in perspective, everything you've done this year since new year's is not, is not even equaling up to the time that you were there. Mm-hmm. That's a, I mean, just think about that for people listening. It's like, you know, so 50 days long, in, long you start to realize like this is, you're in it for the long haul. What is that? What does that look like in your brain? Is it an epiphany? It's a surrender to the fact that I'm going to have to come up with some ideas here and get creative on how I'm going to make it through this because I'm determined to survive if I have anything to do with it. There are some extenuating circumstances that I can't control, but what I can control is my mind and I can control my mindset and I can control what I'm thinking about. So what are those things you start thinking about? Because I think, you know, we talk about this on this show all the time Mm -hmm. on a completely different tangent, how we like as a populace now have this constant need to be distracted, be in a phone, be stimulated constantly. When all of a sudden, you know, people talk on this, oh, I'm going to take a break from social media. This is a break from everything. You have nothing. So where does your mind go? So I decided that I had actually a really interesting opportunity in, in front of me. I woke up one morning and I moved my mat from the middle of the field that I was sleeping in to under a tree where I would sit all day. And I was really into yoga at the time. So I was really trying to do some stretches and work the kinks out. I started thinking about the fact that after this particular training, I had been planning on taking some time off work and kind of going on a sabbatical. I, I had mentioned I'd lost my mom the year before and we'd lost her very suddenly and very tragically. And I was like until this really deep in in my grief around that. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go sit in an ashram or something somewhere and just grieve for three months and just like, I don't know, get it all out of me or something. And and I was sitting there looking around and I thought, you know, didn't the Buddha reach enlightenment while he was sitting under a tree? And didn't Jesus wander the desert for 40 days and 40 nights to meet to, to like, you know, wrestle with this decision and all of the spiritual greats of all of the religions, there has been some sort of like point where everything has been taken away, whether they've chosen that or it has happened to them and they have had this opportunity for transformation. So maybe, maybe this was my ashram, right? Maybe this was my opportunity because you're exactly right. I had nothing. What a beautiful way to look at it. So you you realized you were sort of forced into silence. So why not take advantage of it? I don't like to waste time. I don't like to waste opportunities, right? I get it. I, get, I mean, that's a great way to look at the rest of your time. It's like you can deal with your grief in silence. Right. And see what is, what's out there, what was behind and what's in front. And, and so I feel like, well, what I did is I got really organized with my mind And I decided that I was going to think about everything that had ever happened to me that I could remember, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it in those 31 years. And I was going to examine it and I was going to reflect on it. And I was going to try to ask for forgiveness and bury some grudges and like do some healing. I don't know. I, I, I was just like, let me just think about these things. And so I started with the memory of like the first time one of my first memories when my mom took me to the movie theater when I was four and we went to go see Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And, and I could, re- I got so detailed, like, 
you know, when people talk about visualization and manifestation and everything, and they talk about like being in it, like so that you can feel it. Well, I did that only in reverse. And I was like, became this like four-year-old child again. And I can remember like the freckles on my mom's suntan skin. And I can remember how crooked her teeth were and the sound of her laugh. And like over and over, I just went back and I went back and I went back and I, I forgave people. I forgave her and I asked her for forgiveness. I, I, I made some connections as to why I made some really shitty decisions in my life, that present one not included yet. And I, it became this like, this escape, this place of freedom in my mind that I have never experienced again. And I don't think I could have ever experienced if I hadn't been out there. So there was a therapeutic element to what you went through. Yeah. It sounds like. Well, it was transformational, really. Well, yeah. How could it not? I mean, well, there's yeah. no distraction. There's no distraction. There's no time limit. I have complete autonomy. And so I think that that is one of my greatest truths and life lessons that I will carry with me. And, and it's the gospel that I preach is that you may not have a lot of options, but you've always got choices. What's interesting about all this, I'm just listening to you talk here and all of the normal day-to-day distractions, obligations, responsibilities are gone Mm -hmm. in one instance. No more bills, there's no more bank accounts, there's no more car, there's no insurance, there's no rent payments, there's no maintaining the house. It's like, it's just all gone. Mm -hmm. What does it look like two weeks leading up to you getting rescued. Did you start to feel that something was changing? Could you feel it energetically or was it completely a surprise that you got rescued? Yeah, I I was feeling mentally pretty strong at that point. And that would have been like 75 days in or something. And are they just like normal? Like now it's like, okay, you're part of the, you're like in the camp, you're there. Like yeah. They're kind of like, yeah. maybe not as intense in the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm not a worried that they're going to shoot me essentially anymore like I think we've found a rhythm right I have a way to spend my days now and and we kind of know each other as much as you can and it feels like we've settled into something because we're going to be here for a while but what the problem was you know I'm living outside I'm the only woman I, I there's no bathroom like no one's bringing me toilet paper or anything you know so I'm just squatting behind a bush all the time I get a urinary tract infection oh no and it and I'm prone to those so you know I know I know the, how this show goes they won't bring me anything you know I'm like look here's the situation I need a doctor I need antibiotics I know exactly what I need I write it down on a piece of paper that they give me they take it to whoever they say no because they don't need me comfortable. They just need me alive enough. You should have said, I'm going to die if I don't get this. Because oh, yeah, if anyone's have yeah. ever had a UTI, this sounds like the worst place on the planet to have a UTI. It's terrible. But what's even worse is that it moved into a, a kidney infection. <sighs> Which is, that's happened to me before. And it's yeah. fucking... I mean, people die. It's you die. Horrific. Yeah. It's, so, it's the worst pain. Like you're hallucinating. You're throwing up. Like I can't walk anymore. They don't understand. You have to go to the hospital. You need, I need an IV. I need to be in a sanitary environment. And so January 16th would be my last of six proof of life calls. 
I didn't know it was the last one, but the proof of life calls would be, you know, they would drive us like out into the middle of the desert, put us on a satellite phone, and we would talk to somebody who was supposed to be a representative for our family and the organization. And they were supposed to ask a series of security questions to make sure that we were still alive so that negotiations could keep moving forward because they're not going to negotiate if we're not still alive. Wait, and pause, pause, pause on that. So when you, when you're, what are you saying to these people when you get on the phone? Are you only allowed to say certain things or mm-hmm. you're like, yo, get me the fuck out of here? I mean, no, that is not what I'm saying. I'm answering their questions. They want to know if I want to pass a message along to my, my husband. And it's usually like, which we haven't even talked about. I can only imagine what he's going through and what your dad's going through mm-hmm. and your family. Like, I mean, it's their own hell. Yeah, right? I'm sure. I'm sure it's, it's got to be the biggest feeling of helplessness ever. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew like intrinsically that my husband has worked in and with Somalia for like 20 years. And I knew that he he knew the context very well. And he's also a bulldog. And so like you don't mess with him. And so I knew that if anybody was fighting, no one could fight harder for me and for my safety than Eric could. And I I could feel that, that he was banging down every door and slamming his fists on tables. I knew that's what happened was happening and and it was but i said uh, uh, that was probably the first time because usually what i would say is i'm i'm not fine but i'm i'm doing okay you know please tell my family i love them but that january 16th that call i said like here are my symptoms i have a i have a kidney infection i don't think i have much longer out here probably a couple more weeks if you don't get me out of here i'm going to die and it's going to be on you And so that information was then taken to my husband, who then checked in with my doctor in Nairobi. And he said to Eric, like, you got to get her out of there. She's going to die. I give her three weeks tops. So he took that information to the FBI who was working the case. And Eric would say that it was like a movie, like Matt Espenshade, the FBI director who was heading up the the mission. and, And one of his colleagues just looked at each other and then walked out of the room. And he said he knew in that moment something that had set the wheels in motion. He didn't know what wheels they were, but he knew something was going to happen. Fast forward about nine days later, you know, I'm still just out there. <laughs> like at this point, I'm not really able to walk like much. You know, I'm like, like it's so, the so worst. pitiful and tragic really to think about. Like I'm like crawling, you know, to the nearest bush. I'm so sick. I'm coming back. I'm wrapping myself up in my blanket. You know, we would go to bed around six o'clock every night because the sun goes down. And I remember there were two stars that would come out at the same time every night. And they were really, really bright, really vibrant. And I named one for my mom and I would talk to her every night. And this night I was just like, gotta do something like i need you to to go and tell god that he needs to do something or else i'm i'm not gonna make it out of here i am not gonna survive and so i go to sleep and i wake up a couple hours later with the need to be sick again and so i say the word toilet which is how i asked to be excused from my mat to go do what i needed to do and there were nine guys on the ground that night nine pirates and so like a smaller group than was typical. And always, every single, like 92 nights before, there was always one person who was keeping watch, who was keeping guard, you know, making sure we didn't escape or whatever. But everybody was passed out, like hardcore passed out. I'm standing there like, toilet, like, you know, screaming it and no one will wake up. And I think, okay, well, you know, I need to go. So I have this small flashlight, like a little pen light that they had given me. So I start, I pick it up and I start 
moving it like, you know, around and I'm flashing it because I want them to know that if somebody does wake up, I haven't tried to escape. I'm here. I just am using the bush. Um, And I come back and I roll myself up into my blanket. Sleep, you know, was so important to me. It was the only way I really could. It was the only relief I got from the pain and from the situation trying to go back to sleep. And I can hear something like you asked about animals, right? I can hear something in the grasses. It's like breaking grass, like an ant, like a large animal is coming toward us. And I'm thinking, I don't really have the energy to deal with this, whatever this is. And, and, but I get up and I'm like shaking my blanket around. Maybe it's bugs that are coming out. I don't know what's happening. And I'm also thinking maybe I'm just kind of like hallucinating and losing my mind at this point, but I can hear something. And then I lay back down and about 30 seconds goes by and helper he jumps up and he's holding up his firearm and he's like whisper screaming to all the other guys to get up wake up wake up in Somali and then the night just erupts into automatic gunfire oh Jesus it like just like boom boom, 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 boom. I mean just like just like a movie right and I'm thinking I'm just really never gonna make it out of this thing alive am I just like one setback after another in my mind I'm thinking it's probably another group come in they know we're here they're gonna re-kidnap us and we're gonna have to start this whole process over again and I don't have I don't have it in me I can't do this I'm hearing Olive I'm hearing I mean helper he's shot he falls down on the ground next to me all the other guys they're just dropping to the ground I mean they're dying and I'm trying to get as low to the ground and cover up with my blanket as I can and then I feel somebody grab my ankles and my shoulders and I'm trying to fight back And I have my hands up in front of me to guard myself, try to protect myself. And then I hear the voice of a young American man. And he knows my name. Postpartum with Towns, I was good as far as like thickness and shedding because I was doing a lot of different things. But what I noticed is I would put my hair back in like a slick bun and I would get those little baby hairs everywhere like popping up. So I needed like some kind of, I don't know, like a spray to help repair the hair damage. It looked like it was from like maybe a straightener or a blow dryer or some heat. So I found this product. It's by Wella Professionals and it's called Ultimate Repair Miracle Hair Rescue. What I do is I'll put my hair in a bun. I'll get a really good brush. I'm all about a good brush. And I'll pull my hair back into a ponytail and then I'll wrap it and put a claw clip in it. And then I'll put this Ultimate Repair Miracle Hair Rescue on top of the sleeked back bun. And sometimes I'll even rub it on the bun, but mainly you really want to get it on the top of your head. And what it does is it gives you really pretty shiny hair, but it also helps with the breakage. I noticed just like a smoother coat. It looks really healthy and this should not surprise you because there's omega-9 in it. And every single thing is designed to create a protective barrier on the hair. This brand is vegan, cruelty-free, dermatology-tested, safe for colored hair, and formulated without artificial dyes, which we love. This product by Wellis Professionals is where it's at. You can purchase Ultimate Repair Miracle Hair Rescue at Ulta now. You can also go to wella.com. That's W-E-L-L-A.com to learn more. As you can imagine, I am very detailed about the way I wake up, but also the way I go to bed. And a lot of people have DM'd me and asked me what alarm clock I use in the morning. And I do not use my phone. In fact, my phone is usually outside my room. It's on airplane mode. I don't want to touch it or look at it. The last thing on the planet that I want is to be woken up by my alarm. 
So what I use is the Restore 2, and it's by this brand Hatch. And what it is, is it's like a gradual sunrise alarm that wakes you up gently. It doesn't spike your cortisol. There's nothing worse being woken up by a loud, like vintage alarm, and it just rips you out of bed. And immediately you're like, where's the saber tooth tiger? No, this wakes you up gently. And then it has this other feature. And this is a feature that I use for my children too when they're in our room. It's this little feature that you turn on at night and it helps you break your late night scrolling habit. What it does is it sort of turns red like a sunset and it has like a meditation. So it guides you to sleep. So what I'll do in my room is I'll turn off my lights. I'll maybe turn on my salt rock lamp and I'll put on my restore to and I'll set it to the sunset setting with a guided meditation. It is absolutely incredible. Make space for the rest in your life with Restore 2. This is one of my best sleep hacks. I can't even tell you. Head to Hatch.co and get free expedited shipping on your new Restore 2 so you can start feeling well-rested ASAP. One of our producers, Carson, told us about Topgolf, and I'm obsessed. This is such a good date night or a place to go with your friends. Topgolf. It's golf. It's not golf. It's Topgolf. Let's get into it. Okay, so they have a bunch of stuff that makes them golf. Clubs, balls, tees, turf. They even have like a ball picker upper cart. They have a lot of things that make them not golf. Loud music, giant TVs, and handcrafted food and beverage menus. So you could like take all your friends and you could play. Even if you don't golf, it doesn't matter because everyone can play top golf, even if no one can swing a club. They also have food and beverage. So if you're more of a leisurely luncher or diner. It's truly the only place you can play a round and then order another or hit a slice and then grab a slice. I'm into this. It's comfortable. It's heated. It's just like a really fun time. You know what I mean? I think this is super cute if you want to experience a vibe. Put down your phone and you can just play and have fun. You can eat. You can drink. And even it's so cool when you go, they have a bunch of arcade games. It's just a total vibe. So if you're looking for some fun and you want to do something different, then you have to check out Topgolf. We're going to do a Dear Media event at Topgolf. So we're going to bring the team and we're going to eat, drink, and maybe play. Like I said, it's golf. It's not golf. It's Topgolf. Download the app, book a bay, and come play around. And he says, Jessica, it's okay. We're the American military. You're safe now. And we're going to take you home. Oh, my God. You must have been like, thank God. Those bad motherfuckers, those guys. <laughs> well, all I can say is he, I, he pulls the blanket down away from my face. And I can't see anything because it's really dark. Like, this, it has clouded over. And I can see, like, sense that there are figures around me, but they're all black, right? They're black masks and stuff. All I can say over and over again is, you're American? Wait, you're American? Wait, I, 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 I don't understand you're American. Like how, how, how did you, how did you find me? How did you know I was out here? And he hands me a bottle of water and, and some tablets, like some medicine. He says, we've been watching you for a really long time and we know how sick you've been. And yeah, you're, you're going to go home. What do you mean they've been watching you for a long time? Well, they had what to, do, they, well, how long do they have to watch you for? Well, I mean, uh, they, what I mean, do you mean they've been watching that's you? For? A, it's a very technical question to answer, but essentially like a military intervention is not anybody's first choice. There's, it's very, very risky. 
right? There's could be loss of life. There could you could lose the hostage. There could be loss of life on the military side. And I believe that they had tried at least three or four times, but something had happened and it wouldn't have been able to be. I mean, they executed. gotta get there first and get in position. You know There's what's so interesting and eerie is you said that this was one night where everyone was asleep. And you mentioned the other nights mm-hmm. how people someone would always be awake, but you mentioned so the military must have known however they knew that everyone was like knocked out. Like you can say what you want about the military, but when these guys go and they do, I mean, like they take care of shit, right? Like we don't even know the half of it. I had no idea that this was even a possibility. It's not like I was sitting there thinking, oh, that I'm an American and the military is going to come. I didn't know that they did stuff like that. I don't know. Maybe everybody else did, but I didn't. Again, it's something you see in a movie. You do. I'm like a little old, like a lowly aid worker from Ohio. No one knows I'm out here. No one cares. With these stories on movies, though, you always see the person like the, the you see the military coming and they help you. But my question is what happens in the next three hours? Are you transported somewhere? Do you see the people that had been capturing you? Where did they go? Like, what is the do helicopters flying? Or yeah. do you got to go and like get in a car and like get to the coast? Like, how do you even get out of the country? Because I'm sure this is not, this is obviously not a, what does a it look like? expedition here. Well, so one of them asks me if I can find my shoes because we've got to get out of this proximity to this somewhere safe. I can't find my shoes like i i mean i i can't like i don't even know my name at this point you know yeah when i say not warranted too i want to clarify like this the somali government did not green light this or did they i don't think i know the answer to that question okay it's probably above my my there are people think i know a lot more around that than i do and i sign lots of papers that say i won't say anything (laughs) sure sure so. (laughs) so he i can't find my shoes so he explains okay well here's what i'm gonna do I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to put you over my shoulder and we're getting out of here. So that's what he does. He picks me up and throws me over his shoulder. And I do have a very distinct memory of my head just like bobbing up and down. And I'm just like, how can this be my life? So he's just running, just running, you know, and gets me to the place that's safe. My first question is, is Paul here? Is he okay? Did he make it out alive? He did. And, And he's sitting right there to my left and he leans over to me and he goes, Jessica, do you know who these guys are? And I'm like, not sure I really care. Like, you know, we're, we're getting out of here. That's all that matters. And he says, this is SEAL Team 6. Like, these are the guys that got Osama bin Laden. And I I mean, I just can't wrap my brain around it. And so um, at one point, they're not sure that what's happening over there, like the premises is safe. And so they have Paul and I lie down and about three or four of them actually lay down on top of us to protect us. And then the rest form a wall, like a shield. And we stay like that until the helicopters come in. There are these massive like helo, I don't know the military terms for the aircrafts. I should know by now, but I don't. It was important. I had to walk myself there because it was kind of far and, you know, my health is like deteriorating, but I do remember putting my Birkenstocks on and like it was like all the adrenaline, right? Like I, this is my last I don't know, like just this last act of survival, right? To like just get they're helping me. We finally get onto the helicopter. I remember like throwing myself onto the floor on my stomach and scraping my way to the other side and pressing my back up against it. And it wasn't until we were probably like 10,000 feet up into the air that I was like, I think I might have survived. I think I might be able to live through this. I think I'm going home. I have no idea of what I'm about to ask. So I would love to know why can't 
they the United States just give the ransom money right away? Why do they have to go through 90 days of negotiation? Well, I imagine. I mean, that's pretty complicated, but mm-hmm. I imagine it encourages more of that behavior then. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, the U.S. has a policy that they don't negotiate with terrorists or groups like this. Most, I don't think there are any countries that would pay a ransom. So, so then why do the pirates even try to do it with the U.S. if they know the U.S. doesn't negotiate with terrorists? They're not negotiating with the government. They're negotiating with the organization that I work for. Got it. My organization had an insu- had kidnapping and ransom insurance. Most organizations should. If they don't, then they should be shut down. And why didn't the organization? They did. They gave but the money. You don't just pay. You Why? have to negotiate. Why can't they just? Because it's an insurance company. So they. So it's like it could take ninety days. It, it could take got, three years. Do you? Do you think if you had not been rescued, what do you think would have happened? I would have died because of the kidney infection, and or because yeah. of the circumstances. I think the kidney infection would have gotten me first, but it happened as a result of the circumstances. I. I am sitting here having this conversation with you today because the U.S. government did put lives at risk and and did go out there to save just this one and and Paul. He, but you know he was he was an aside, right? Because he's not an American citizen. I think that that is an important part of my message. You know, I'm not promoting going out and being reckless and 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 putting yourself in unsafe situations out all over the world. But what I am here to also say is that we don't have we as americans i don't think largely have an understanding of what it means to belong to a country who will go at just unlimited capacity at what they will go to in order to bring their citizens home and i remember after that helicopter ride we were taken to an airfield in in Galkayo in Somalia and put on a plane and then we were taken to Djibouti to a military base where we spent 24 hours we got medical care and i remember there was a young marine in my hospital room and he was you could tell he was like mr personality like he had been sent in there to like chat me up a little bit. And I haven't talked really to anybody in like three months. So I was having a really hard time with social skills, wondering if maybe I'd lost them entirely. He says to me, President Obama is the person who called your dad personally to let him know that you survived and that you're coming home. I'm like, your information can't be right. Like that, that it's not straight. And, and I, I, I was saying, you know, relaying to him, like, Paul throughout the captivity would be like, send in the Marines, you know, and and I would get really mad at him and be like, Paul, you're from Denmark. There are like three million people in your country. Like I'm from America. We have like 400 million people. Like no one knows we're here. No one cares. You know, I was like Debbie Downer all the way. And I was telling him about that. And he said, that's, that's just so not true. And he held up his arm and he had a tattoo of missing in action and prisoners of war emblem on his forearm. And he said, this is for every American citizen. If we have it within our power to go out and rescue somebody, we don't leave any American citizen behind. You know, she's talking about the ones pound me and it's black Mm -hmm. and white. Wow. When do you reunite with your husband? It would be about three or four days later. We were then taken to a, a military base in Italy and opted in to participate in the Department of Defense's hostage reintegration program. It was very regimented and had been very heavily researched. And I felt like, you know, they got me out of here. I feel like they're the experts. I knew I had made a commitment while I was out there to 
prioritize my mental health and my healing from the get-go. So that was part of that for me. And so the first, I got a five-minute conversation with him on the phone when we were in Djibouti. And then a couple of days later, we had an hour together in the hospital. And then the next day, we were able to go to lunch, but it was supervised and everything was in stages. And I, I, un- I didn't understand at the beginning, but I understand, I understood during and then post why they do this because it's very, very overwhelming. Your loved one has had all this time to think about things and all the things they want to say, and you've just been trying to stay alive. And so those mindsets, maybe those emotional states don't match up. And so it can be very overwhelming for the returning hostage. What else do they make you do? You said it's very routine. Yeah, like a lot of interviews with the FBI, a lot of intense like therapy. I had a a psychiatrist that was assigned just to me and and he was there to protect me. So if the, the interviews were getting to be too much, then he would stop them and we would go take a walk. It was just a lot of like making sure yeah, for a long time, uh, like days they were, it was cold and snowing, but I kept insisting on walking around with no shoes and no socks because I had been doing wow. that for so long and it felt very strange to have socks and shoes on. And so, you know, it was up to them to notice and be like, you know what, why don't we get you some flip flops? You know, because I what I had on my body was taken into evidence. So I had I had no clothes or shoes or anything left. So it was stuff like that, you know, bringing me toiletries for the first time and stuff. On a day to day basis now, what's different? What are the little tiny things that some people who are listening would not think about? Mm. I mean, everything is kind of different. And I do. It's weird how like memories will just come out of the woodwork. I had a moment this morning, actually, and it's I don't think it's a coincidence that it happened. I was I just showered and I was getting ready to come over here and I was laying on the bed in my hotel and and I had this overwhelming gratitude and all I could say out loud to the universe And to SEAL Team 6 and to myself was, thank you for saving me. You know, like, thank God saved me. I, you know, the universe was saved me and and, and then SEAL Team 6 saved me. And then I had to go back and save myself to a large extent. And and so I think that, you know, there are the the very practical things like I really do appreciate a shower, (laughs) a good shower, being able to take a bath. That still doesn't get old. Or knowing where my food has been a real big thing for me. And I'm working through that with my therapist still. When you've been systematically starved for a long time, it's hard to regulate all of that when you come back out. And it's been years, but it's still difficult. I'm thankful to have a food source. Anytime I get sick and I drive myself to urgent care, I am so grateful that I have access, like on so many levels, you know, there's so many people in America who don't even have access to, to, to regular healthcare. So I think for a while I walked around in just shock. And then there was a lot of grief around having lost my job and my livelihood and having to rebuild a life that, you know, when you have, you've suffered trauma, like it changes things fundamentally cellularly on, in your body and in your mind. But then the physical surroundings changed too. We had to leave Africa because it was too hard for me. I got pregnant a month after the rescue with my son, which also threw me for a loop, but has, you know, been its own journey. I think the thing that has changed in me 
is that I am just really, really grateful and not like I'll take the table scraps and, you know, all this. I'm lucky for whatever I get. It's just like this really intentional gratitude to be in this body and to be in this chair right now talking to you. Like it just feels so real. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Especially with what you've been through. So Paul is okay too? I believe so. I mean, he was rescued successfully. We don't have a relationship. No relationship. Mm -mm. Is that intentional? Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of negligence on his part and my organization around why this happened in the first place. There was a kidnapping threat that was not disclosed to me. Oh, wow. (sighs) So I, I would say that that has been my forgiveness journey, actually. Not really the pirate's. I bet you, after all this happened, that you crave sitting in silence, I would think. Oh, my God. How did you know that? I just, once you start sitting in silence, you want more and more and more. Hint, hint, hint. (laughs) I am very committed to silence. (laughs) It's nice, probably, to Mm -hmm. sit in silence and just be able to, with everything you've been through, sort of go through your thoughts. Well, we talk about, like I said earlier, all the time on the show, it's like maybe disconnecting and getting away and not being so hyper-connected. Obviously, I don't think everybody should even, you know, like the example that you, the thing you went through, like nobody should have to go through that. But just, you know, once in a while, getting a little bit less of this, and I'm holding up my phone for people mm-hmm. listening, and a little bit less of just being so inundated with so much. Because I think, you know, as a as a species, we've gotten away from a lot of that, right? And it's hard to figure out who you are and connect with yourself. And, and to your point, even kind of go back and think about and contemplate what you really want out of life. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that these things happen so that we have the opportunity to meet ourselves in a way that we couldn't have ever met ourselves before. And so I think that can translate to anybody's darkest moment you know what you're made out of, you know, yeah, what you want. And you can't do that to your point unless you spend a lot of time in silence. I had, it was, he was a veteran asked me once, it's the only time anybody's ever asked me. And he works very much in veterans affairs and and PTSD. And he said, do you ever kind of want to go back to that place? Because you had reached a point of like such contentment and solitude within yourself and I was like yes actually yes because there is I mean outside of the guns and all of that stuff but for the most part like there's no there's nothing competing for my attention there are very few demands all you have to do is survive that's it you don't have to make any decisions same thing happens to prisoners yeah right yeah. They come out into the it's very it's complex. There's this is very mm-hmm. it seems like it's a very complex situation. Yeah, people mm-hmm. can't understand why sometimes and I, listen, I've never experienced it either, but when people get out of prison, why they sometimes want to go back. Right. right. Because everything was you didn't have to make any decisions, right? It's very overwhelming. And I don't think I was out there long enough for that to become my reality. But yeah, I, I'm very intentional. What happened to the pirates? So the nine that were on the ground that night died. Oh, wiped out one. That was it. Yeah. So that must bring you a little bit of comfort, though, in a way. Mm, I don't think so. I think that it things are not black and white. They get gray really fast. I don't. I don't feel like I've suffered Stockholm syndrome. I was not devoted to their cause. 
but I was there as an aid worker, right? So I was there to try to help build infrastructure and educate and all the things. And it makes me really sad when people don't have any other options other than crime to keep their children alive, right? And so in a way, I kind of get it. Yeah, you almost sound like you feel empathy for them. Yes. Well, because it's like, that's what I was and it, it's a very hard issue, which I know you have thought about way more than us. But to your point, if if this all kind of originated because there's no resources, no way to make a living, then the fishing gets taken from them and there's literally nothing to feed themselves or their family. To your point, like help or make like these guys, it's not like they woke up in the one day and said, I can't wait to do this when I'm older. Right? Yeah, like, I don't think that the majority, some people are born evil. Sure. But I don't think these men did. They They just didn't have any options. And the little boy? I don't know what happened to him. I'm glad that he wasn't there that night. I think that that would have been really hard for me to to cope with. I'm glad too. Yeah. You wrote a book. You've also written another book that was a New York Times bestselling. Mm -hmm. Tell us about both books. So Impossible Odds came out in 2013. I co-wrote that with my husband, Eric. It's called Impossible Odds, The Kidnapping of Jessica Buchanan and Her Dramatic Rescue by SEAL Team 6. And that's really an account. It's memoir of that particular, that slice of our lives and our experience. Um, and then the book that just came out is called Deserts to Mountaintops, Our Collective Journey to Reclaiming Our Voice. And it's an anthology. It is 22 chapters. It's 25 women's voices that I've collected. I'm the lead author. And it's really written around this theme of recognizing that we all have a desert to mountaintop experience and we probably will have many in our lifetimes. And that journey that we we go through to get to what our mountaintop is. And for women, I think a lot of us feel like we have lived our lives with very little voice and at some point in time it was silenced. And so there are incredible stories in this anthology of strength and survival and inspiration and women who have reclaimed their voice. And the stories are as different as the women are, but I'm very proud of the work that I'm doing now and that they have shared their stories in such a, a beautiful way. And where can you find your book? And your Instagram, all yeah, the things. Anywhere you buy books. Instagram? Instagram, Jessica C. Buchanan. I hang out there probably way too much. So <laughs> have you gotten on TikTok? A little. I feel like your story would really resonate there. People love stories on that app. Yeah, that's true. I'll 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 explore that maybe a little bit later. Beautiful job. Thank, thank you, you so much for coming on. Your story is so inspiring. Story. Thank you for having me. Wild. Uh, thank you, Jessica. I cannot wait to read your book. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, guys. This episode was brought to you by The Skinny Confidential. Don't forget to go shop one of our only sales of the year. Use code PINKBASH for 20% off excluding kits and gift cards. Go to shopskinnyconfidential.com and use code PINKBASH. If you would like to win a copy of Jessica's book signed by her, all you have to do is tell us who you want to hear next on the Skinny Confidential Him and Her podcast on my latest post at Lauren Bostick and make sure you've rated and reviewed the podcast on iTunes. With that, we'll see you next time.